Earlier this week, experts from around the world gathered here in the capital to attend the Seoul Dialogue for Human Rights, an event organized by the Yonsei Center for Human Liberty and the National Human Rights Commission of Korea in partnership with other organizations and media entities. The day began with an opening address from the event's chair, Yonsei Professor Lee Jong-hoon, who discussed the dual nature of the conference in recognition of the 800th anniversary of the Magna Carta. This conference aims to rekindle the founding goals of Magna Carta in the hopes of applying the lessons learned to North Korea, where three generations of tyranny has systematically deprived the people of their fundamental rights. It is my hope that this conference will lead, starting from next year, to an annual human rights summit meeting in Seoul, a human rights version of the Asia Security Summit held annually in Singapore, also known as the Shangri-La Dialogue. Thank you. Former chairman of the UN Commission of Inquiry Michael Kirby was also in attendance and gave a congratulatory address that emphasized the special day that coincided with the conference. The 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918 was the moment when a great war came to an end, not by a victory, nor at that time by a peace treaty, but by an armistice. 35 years later, on this peninsula in Korea, that is how another dreadful war came to conclusion. And in a sense, the results of the First World War continue to be felt and are connected with the Korean War. And in a sense, the results of the Korean War are the cause of our coming together in this conference in Seoul. We are here, as President Park has reminded us this morning, to make sure that the world never forgets and always remembers the report of the Commission of Inquiry. In Remembrance Day, we remember with a poppy from Flanders Fields to remember the suffering of those who fought on both sides in the First World War. We need a Korean flag or a Korean flower to remember the suffering of the Korean people. And I honour my colleagues, the members of the Commission of Inquiry, Marzuki Darasman, who continues to do his tireless work as the special rapporteur of the United Nations for human rights in DPRK, and Sonia Pasoko, uh, who was the third member of the Commission, who is here today. All of us committed and determined that the world community will remember on Remembrance Day and every day the work of the Commission of Inquiry, which is collected in this report. The day's first panel discussion featured guests from all over the world, 
including UK Conservative House of Lords member Baroness Buscombe. I want to start by actually stating something from Magna Carta itself to help set the scene. No free man shall be seized or imprisoned or stripped of his rights or possessions or outlawed or exiled or deprived of his standing in any other way except by the lawful judgment of his equals or by the law of the land. It was the first time that limitations were placed upon and forced upon a monarchy in power. It was the first contract between sovereign ruler and the people. The amazing thing was, this was brought about by a group of people who were actually what has become today members of what became the House of Lords, which I'm a member. They were known as the barons, they were the landowners of England. And so to start with, the Magna Carta was really focused upon only a small group of people. You might say the privileged, but that was the beginning. It was a very small beginning, but incredibly profound. But it took some years and a lot of progress and a lot of struggle in order to reach ordinary people beyond this small group of landowners. But throughout the centuries, it's been an amazing inspiration for laws around the world, from the US Constitution to the UN Declaration of Human Rights to give power and rights and freedom of expression to ever wider groups of citizens. But after that, the first Magna Carta didn't actually last very long, and I think this is important to know because the reality is that whatever may happen with regard to, for example, North Korea in the early stages of perhaps finding a way through the struggle will not be instant. The answer won't be instant. Marzuki Darusman, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on the Human Rights Situation in North Korea, also attended the conference and led one of the panel discussions. Uh, let me start by introducing Mr. Greg Skalatoyu, uh, who is the Executive Director of Human Rights uh, North Korea. Having established that uh, crimes against humanity have been uh, committed, we are now in the stage of uh, an accountability process, and and uh, and this is where I think uh, Mr. Greg Skalatu, in his capacity as uh, representing a uh, research institute, could be uh, immense uh, support. Right? As we all know, there is an ongoing, intense crackdown on attempted defections the number of former North Koreans successfully escaping to South Korea declined by 50% from 2011 to 2012. That trend has continued to this day from about 2,800 to just about 1,500 a year. We have also found that especially in recent years, especially under the regime of Kim Jong-un, uh, we are seeing enhanced gender repression. We see new facilities for women having been built and expanded at North Korea's political prison camps. Why? Because women, married women in particular, are the ones who have taken charge of the survival of their families. They're the ones who are arrested at the markets while being engaged in market activities for perceived wrongdoing. They're the ones who 
cross the border. This is a criminal act in the view of the North Korean regime, doing it without the approval of the authorities. Then the ones get arrested, forcibly repatriated from China, and thus their numbers have increased. And of course, there is a fifth trend, and that is purges. For that reason, good arguments can be made on both sides. Arguments have been made that the regime is relatively stable. However, given that all of these four fundamental building blocks have been purged with extreme prejudice, probably a good argument uh, can be made in favor of stating that the regime continues to be unstable. As stated earlier, the factors that continue to maintain the regime in power, relentless indoctrination, surveillance control, coercion and punishment, and information control, factors that are eroding the regime's grip on power, the advent of markets as a coping mechanism, open markets, farmers markets, black markets, um, more information entering the country through the informal supply chains established all the way from China to the capital city. Corruption, in a very strange kind of way, is eroding the regime's grip on power. There is a lot of corruption in this system, in this hybrid system that has developed in post-communist, post-industrial, kleptocratic, dynastic North Korea. What do we need? We need a massive grassroots campaign on a par with what was done to take down South Africa's apartheid. We cannot do that as a research organization. We are very fortunate to know that our colleagues at such grassroots organizations have been very active. If we have campaigns against killer robots, campaigns to abolish the death penalty, campaigns focusing on individuals at risk, pledges to end human rights violations committed in the name of national security, I think we might as well have a massive worldwide grassroots campaign addressing North Korean human rights spurred by these wonderful and massive organizations that truly have the capacity to do this. South Korean President Park Geun-hye did not attend the event, but sent a personal message that was read at the conference that said now is the time to make, quote, practical efforts to improve the North's dire human rights situation. For KoreaFM.net, I'm Chance Dorlin.